not know me, um, I am not Pastor Ryan Cox. If you came expecting to hear him, please come back next week. Uh, my name is Anthony, and you're stuck with me today. But I want to welcome you to week four of our series through the book of Ephesians, the first four chapters of Ephesians, I should say. And we're calling this series The Church. If you were here last week, or maybe you listened online, then you would have heard Pastor Ryan walk through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and explain how Jesus changes or transforms our personal identity by changing our relationship with God. Today, I'll actually be walking you through the next eight verses of that chapter and talking about the flip side of that same coin, how Jesus transforms our corporate or our group identity by changing our relationship with other believers. So let's just go ahead. I want to read those verses to you on the front end, and then we'll jump into the details. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. And it says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near and through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, the way that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Ephesian churches, the way that he structures this passage um, can best be described, at least in my mind, as a before and after picture. Now, I'm sure everyone here has seen those ads, those before and after photos before. Um, about seven years ago, I purchased the P90 exercise program. Anybody in here a fan or a user of P90? Am I really the only one? Not to be confused with P90X, as in extreme. I bought the normal mortal version where literally, this is true, literally they have you use large rubber bands instead of weights. But I did it. I made it through. Um, but what they have you do when you first purchase this program, you got this little instruction booklet. The, one of the very first things they have you do is take all these unflattering photos from different angles. Um, those are your before photos. And then as you complete different stages of this program, uh, they have you take, from the same angle, more photos. So now you have your after photos. And, and the point of all of that is very obvious. They want you to see the progress you've made, the, the very real changes that have happened in your body, even though maybe you weren't aware of them. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in the passage I just read to you. In verses 11 and 12, you'll notice he repeats a similar phrase. He says, at one time or at that time, you were. So that's the before picture of who we used to be corporately in relationship with others outside the work of Christ. But then in verse 13, he changes gears and he says, but now. And so that's the after photo 
of who we become corporately after Christ changes us. And then, of course, he goes on to flesh out what that looks like. But Paul's goal with these before and after images is the same as P90's goal. He wants us to see the very real change that has taken place in our group identity, who we are not just personally and individually, but in our relationship with others once Jesus transforms us. So, what I want to do over the next few minutes is just walk you through these two before and after images, and then we'll end by looking at how Christ accomplished that transformation and, of course, what it means for the way that we live. So let's just start with the beginning, this thing that I'm calling the before picture. So as I was reading a second ago that entire passage, 11 through 18, you might have noticed that the Apostle Paul is honing in on two very specific groups of people who he calls Gentiles and Jews. He also uses the phrase Israel. Now, as a first-century Jewish man, this is how the Apostle Paul would have viewed the world for a good portion of his life. So, I think it would be important just on the front end here to make sure we're understanding what he means by those categories. So, Jews were people that were descended from their Old Testament forefather, Abraham, but they shared not only a bloodline, but also values and morals and customs rooted in their faith in the one true God, Yahweh, as revealed in their Scriptures. So, these were the chosen people of that one true God. And as the chosen people of God, they had certain benefits. Paul actually lists them in verse 12, but I can sum them up just by saying they had access to God and to all of His promises. So, that's the Jews. Gentiles, on the other hand, were just simply anybody who were not Jews. And therefore, they didn't have all those benefits. And that's why Paul says they were without hope and without God in the world. Now, At this point, I imagine some of you might be tempted to just check out of this sermon. All this talk of Jew and Gentile may not seem very relevant to you, and you're right. Most of us, including myself, do not view the world through that kind of lens anymore. But what Paul has to say here about these two groups is really just a a case study, you might say, that applies to all the different ways that we still group ourselves together today. So, I would just ask you to maybe humor me. Lean in for a few minutes, and I promise I'm going to do my best to try to connect the dots from the first century here to our lives today. So, verses 12 through 13, Paul shows us that these two groups, Jew and Gentile, were defined and distinguished by three defining characteristics before Christ transformed them, three defining characteristics. And I'm just going to walk you through each of those really quickly. Number one, the first defining characteristic of these two groups is what Paul calls the flesh. I'm just going to read to you verse 11, and you'll hear him repeat that phrase twice. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Let's just get this elephant in the room out of the way. This is weird on a Sunday morning. And I know that's why Pastor Ryan looked through the schedule of teaching and said, this is Anthony's teaching. All right. So, let's talk about it. What is Paul talking about here? At the surface level, he is literally talking about flesh. Circumcision was the outward physical sign that a man was a member of the Jewish people. And therefore, Gentiles who did not have that physical sign were not part of the Jewish people. So, these two groups were literally distinguished by their flesh. Now, I feel like I'm saying flesh a lot. That's also weird. 
Unfortunately, I'm not done because now there's, there's another layer of meaning underneath that literal meaning. And the best way really to understand that, to explain it, is to actually jump over to another passage, also written by the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3. We're going we're to come back to Ephesians 2, but, but I think this passage will clarify what else he means when he says the flesh. So in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, listen to the similarities between what we just read and what we're reading now. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So the question is, what are your confidences in the flesh, Paul? And now he's going to list them for us. And here's the first thing he says in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So, so far, this sounds just like Ephesians 2. But now listen to the rest of the list of the things that he had confidence in that he's calling the flesh. Here he goes. He says, I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So for Paul, the, the flesh also figuratively meant all kinds of other things that he could put his confidence in, things that he says were to his gain or to his advantage. And so the flip side of that is the Gentiles um, did not have all those fleshly advantages that he's mentioning here. So what, what kinds of things did Paul talk about? He talks about things like his pure ancestry. He could trace it all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin. His education as a Pharisee, his zeal and his work ethic that he proved by persecuting the early Christian church. And then most importantly, because we're going to circle back to this, the main thing he put his confidence in was his dedication to obeying all the commands and ceremonies of the Jewish Torah law. So circumcision in his literal flesh was really just an outward sign of all the advantages that he could boast about, feel superior about, and feel more righteous than the Gentiles. So that's the first defining, distinguishing characteristic we're calling it the flesh. The second defining characteristic, which is probably not going to come as a surprise, is separation. Listen with me to verse 12 again. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So because the Gentiles did not possess these defining features of what it meant to be Jewish, they were literally alienated from being citizens of the Jewish nation. In other words, they were considered foreigners. They were excluded. So, what we're not talking about here are two, you know, different groups of people, but they came together for the common good. No, these were two separate groups of people, and it actually gets worse than that. The, def the third defining characteristic is hostility. Twice in verses 14 and 16, the Apostle Paul uses the word hostility to describe the relationships between Jews and Gentiles. And the Greek word underneath that actually means hatred. So, Jews and Gentiles, before the transforming work of Christ, were not just separated from each other. They literally hated each other. Now, you might back away from this and look at this picture of the first century and think to yourself, man, I am really glad that our culture has progressed way beyond these archaic concepts of dividing the world into Jew and, and Gentile, because that sounds awful. The reality is, and I hear some of you chuckling because you know, you know where I'm going with this, that our culture, although we think we've progressed so much, we may categorize ourselves differently, 
But those three remaining, those three defining characteristics have remained exactly the same and just as prevalent and powerful as they ever have been. Let's just think about it for a second. And I'm going to make a statement here that shouldn't be shocking to anybody. We are a culture obsessed with forming groups based on what we perceive as identity advantages, things that we can be confident in and boast about, what Paul himself has called the flesh. And, and it's not to say that all the groups that we create are bad in and of themselves, because they're not. But if you were here last week, you know that, that we humans are naturally, outside of Christ, dead in our sins, slaves to our selfish desires. So what always happens is that we eventually use our group's advantages to exclude, separate from, and vilify other groups. And that always leads to hostility and hatred. And we all naturally do this. I'm including myself in this group here. We do it to different degrees. We do it in very mundane areas of our lives, and we do it in very serious areas of our lives. But just to bring this down a little bit to the street level, let me just give you some actual examples. And what I want you to do as I give you these examples is to yourself, don't say this out loud, I want you to think, as I give you these examples, do I or somebody I know identify with any of these groups? And if so, how do we feel about people in the opposite group? So here they come. I'm going to start pretty tame. How about Ravens fans versus Steelers fans? Yeah, any hostility there? People like to pretend like, oh, it's all in good fun. Yeah, go to one of the games. How about this? Maybe sports is not your thing. How about Marvel versus DC? Nope. See, I've already got some people give it fist fights breaking out all over. How about Gryffindor versus Slytherin? I know you know your house. I know some of you know it. And you, and you don't like the other people. How about this one? Some of you are not going to know what I'm about to be talking about, but just hear me out. How about Team Johnny versus Team Amber? Ooh. How about Team Chris Rock versus Team Will Smith? If you have no idea what that means, God bless you. You are a better place in life than all of us. Um, here's what I'm trying to say. Those things are, relatively speaking, silly things. And yet, we group ourselves together we look at the other group, and we think they're idiots, and we hate them. And that's in very silly things. That's all pretty tame so far. So let me give you some more serious examples. And again, just think to yourself, do I identify with any of these, and how do I feel about the opposite group? Let's start with this. How about redneck versus Yankee, or, or southern versus northern? I know that's a real thing. I, was, I grew up in the south. How about English-speaking versus non-English-speaking? How about natural-born citizen versus immigrant? How about millennial versus boomer? Or conservative versus liberal? And here's a real touchy one. How about black lives matter versus all lives matter versus blue lives matter? Or how about anti-vaxxers versus pro-vaxxers, anti-mask versus pro-mask? And we could keep going with this all day. And for those of you who maybe you're a little more like myself and you like to think, that, you know, I avoid those divisions. I try to see things from both sides. Congratulations, you are part of the independent group who thinks they're so better because they're always so independent, right? And I'm including myself there. I know how I am. And I hope you see my point. What we see through this case study of Jew and Gentile is that outside of the transforming work of Christ, the natural tendency of all humans across history has been to fragment ourselves into groups that ultimately turn our perceived advantages into attitudes of superiority, and that always leads to hostility. And you don't even have to believe the Bible to know that that's true. You can read it through the pages of history, you can walk around your own neighborhood, or you can look into your own heart. 
Now, thankfully, this is not the end of the picture that Paul is painting here. Remember, we're calling this the before picture. This is what we are outside the work of Christ. The most important question, of course, is what do we become after the work of Christ in our lives? And that brings me to the second major part of this passage, what I'm calling, of course, the after picture. So, in verses 13 through 16 now, Paul flips the page, and he shows us how our group identity, the way we relate to others, is radically and supernaturally transformed in Jesus through faith in Him. And what we find in these verses is really the exact opposite of those three defining characteristics that we saw in verses 11 through 12. So, I just want to do a little compare and contrast so you can see the differences here, and this will be a lot quicker than what I just did. So, number one, in Christ, Jews and Gentiles are no longer in a relationship of hostility. They are now in a relationship of peace. Listen to verses 13 through 14. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. Second, in Christ, Jew and Gentile are no longer separated. They are united as one. Listen again to verse 14. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And then this third one's probably my favorite. Remember I told you back in verse 12, Paul kept repeating this phrase, in the flesh, to describe Jew and Gentile. Now listen to the end of verse 14. It says, and Jesus has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In other words, in Christ, Jew and Gentile are no longer defined by their flesh. They are now defined by Jesus' flesh. So, if, if you zoom out from that and you put it all together, here's the big picture that you get. Before Christ, we used to be separated based on our own fleshly identity markers, our achievements, our performances, and that always led to hostility. Now, after Christ, we are united based on what Christ did in His flesh, who He is, what He achieved, how He performed. And now, because of that, we don't have hostility, we have peace. And the really cool thing about this new unity that Christ has created is that by bringing Jew and Gentile and really every other group identity together in peace, Jesus has not just simply created one new group among all the others. His achievement is far greater than that. I want you to hear it in verse 15. Listen to what He's actually done, that He, Jesus, might create in Himself one new man in place of the two so making peace. Jesus has created a new man. Not, not man in the male sense of the word, but in the human sense of the word. So, so really what this means is Jesus has created a new humanity. This is exactly what Paul and the rest of the New Testament means when they talk about this thing that we call the church. The first humanity, the Bible says, born from Adam, fell into sin, and died spiritually with Adam. The church, the new humanity born from Jesus, has been raised and is alive with Jesus. And this new humanity is really just a piece of the bigger cosmic master plan that, that, that actually Pastor Ryan talked about two weeks ago. It's at the end of Ephesians 1, this master plan that everything in creation that's currently so fragmented will one day be reunited and brought together in Christ. In other words, a brand new creation. And we, the new humanity are the first stage of this new creation. So, now that we've seen what we used to be before Christ, now that we understand who we are or who we can be in Christ, 
really the final question is the same question you would ask when you see those before and after photos on the internet. Like, how did that happen, right? Like, how, how did we get from that to that? How did Jesus accomplish this transformation? And the Apostle Paul explicitly answers this question in verses 14 through 15. Here's what he says. And I know we've read this a little bit, but I'm going to focus on a different part of it now. It says, for he, which is Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus broke down this wall of hostility to bring these two groups together, and he did it in his flesh. Now, from verse 16, we know that in his flesh refers mainly to his flesh being nailed to the cross, because there on the cross, Paul says in verse 16, the hostility between Jew and Gentile was killed. So, great. The question is, how did that work? How did Jesus' death on the cross actually kill that hostility? And verse 15 gives us the answer. So, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, the word abolish that you see there can actually be translated better as to make of no effect or to nullify. So, Jesus killed the hostility between Jew and Gentile by making the Jewish Torah law with all of its commands and all of its ceremonies and sacrificial system, he made it obsolete. Now, Again, you might be at this stage where you're thinking, what's that got to do with me? I don't follow the Jewish law, never have. So let me explain. The Jewish law was God's way of doing two things for his people. On one hand, it showed his people the depths of their sin. On the other hand, it provided a way of dealing with those sins through sacrifice so that his people could live in a relationship with a holy God and represent him to the world. Here's the problem. The problem is not the law. The law was never the problem. Paul, in another place, says the law is holy. The law is good. The problem is that obedience to the law was never meant to be the full and final way that people are made right with God. It was only ever meant to be temporary and incomplete. It was meant to be a sign, a pointer to something better. And that's why the temple sacrifices, when you read the Old Testament, you see them making all these sacrifices of lambs and goats. Those temple sacrifices had to be made over and over, year after year, because it was never enough. But the New Testament comes along and teaches us that through Jesus' perfect life of obedience to the commands of the law, and then through his death on the cross as the perfect and final sacrifice to atone for sins, Jesus has now fulfilled the Jewish law. So, the law, Paul can say the law is abolished, because it is the death of Jesus in his flesh that makes us right with God, not the law. So, all right, now hopefully you understand all that, but really the question again is, how did that kill the hostility between Jew and Gentile? Gentiles could have cared less about the Jewish law. What's that got to do with anything? Here's what you have to understand. This, this mistaken belief that obedience to the law was the way that you could be made right with God, that belief really was the primary source of boasting and superiority for Jews in Paul's day. In other words, that's what they could say, look, I obey the law. I have it, I obey it, I keep it, therefore, I am more righteous than you. So the law, even though it was good, had become the root of their hostility. But now what we learn is on the cross, in his flesh, Jesus has killed that hostility at the root by fulfilling the law. 
It can't function like that. Never was meant to function like that, and Jesus proved it on the cross. And by doing that, really what he's doing is proclaiming to the Jewish people, who remember are his people. He's Jewish. He loves them, but he's proclaiming to them, you Jews are just as unrighteous, just as sinful, just as powerless to save yourselves as the Gentiles that you call sinners. Obedience to the law doesn't make you better and them worse. That's why I'm dying for you both. And and this is true. I told you I'd bring it back to us. This is true, not just for the categories of Jew and Gentile, but for every group that has ever existed. The reason the Son of God had to die for our sins, maybe Christianity is a a foreign concept to you, or maybe you're just not buying into it. So let me just explain what it is at its heart. The reason the Son of God had to die for our sins is because there was no other way for us to be made right with God. And maybe you don't even buy into those categories of there's a God that I need to be made right with. But even if you don't believe that, you know, you know that you can never feel like you've you've been right, like, like you are what you're supposed to be. No matter how hard you work, no matter how much you go to the gym, no matter how much money you earn or how much you learn, you never feel like you've ever actually arrived. You can't be righteous. Maybe that's how you define righteousness. But you can't be the way God made you to be. That means that nothing we have to offer, not our nationality or our race or our intelligence or money or political beliefs or good works, none of it can make us right with God. Only the death of Christ can do that. And therefore, all of our different reasons for boasting or feeling superior or more righteous than others has been completely obliterated on the cross. Now, that's the negative side of things. That's the negative side of what Christ accomplished. Hear now the positive side in verse 18. For through Him, through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So through His death on the cross, Jesus is declared we're all sinners. I made that clear. You're probably feeling really bad about yourself. If I stop there, you don't have a lot of hope or good news. But not only has he declared we're all sinners, also on the cross he has paid for those sins so that we can be adopted into God's family. So now what we see in verse 18 is all of us, Jew, Gentile, any other member of any other group, can now have equal access to God as their Father in the power, he says, of his one spirit. He explicitly says one spirit, not multiple spirits for different groups of people. There's one spirit one Savior, one door through which we all enter and have access to the Father's house. This is how, this is how Jesus has killed the hostility between us and created a new humanity of unity and peace. He has smashed all the pedestals that we used to stand on and look down on others, and and then He has placed us all on level ground, and He has given us equal access to the warm embrace of our Heavenly Father. In this family, that means there are no favorite children, there are no black sheep. Each one of us is loved just as much as the other, which is to say more than you could ever imagine. Now, if I were to end this teaching right here, I hope you'd be able to walk away and have a better understanding of what the church is and how Jesus created it. But understanding who we are isn't really the final goal of this passage. The ultimate goal is to get us to live like who we really are. So I'm going to take just a minute, and I'm going to be specifically speaking to 
everyone in here that would consider themselves a believer in Christ. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're here and you're not sure about this whole Christianity thing. I still would invite you and ask you to listen along because I think what I'm going to say is going to matter to you. So, we are called Severn Covenant Church, right? Hopefully, what you've learned now in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 is what that really means is that we are Severn Covenant New Humanity. And if we really begin to understand that identity, the way that Paul describes it here, it should revolutionize the way we think and act and relate to each other as a church. So, what I want to do, just for the sake of time, is just point out two practical ways that everything we've learned over the last few minutes should actually change our lives as a church. The first one's going to be really focused on how we treat those inside the church, and then the second will be focused on how we treat those outside the church. So here's the, here's the first practical way it should change our lives. And I'm, I'm going to borrow this word picture from Pastor Tim Keller. Knowing what we know now about our new humanity in Christ, our identity decks should be reshuffled. Think about all of your different group identities as a deck of playing cards. At different points in your life, a different identity was probably at the top of the deck. Maybe at some point in your life, you thought of yourself mainly as an American or mainly as white or black or mainly as Republican or Democrat, you name it. But now, because of what Christ has done, this identity deck must be reshuffled and the top card must always be our identity as a member of the new humanity in Christ. Now, that may mean that you can no longer identify with certain groups if their values no longer align with the heart of Christ and His gospel. I'll just throw a softball out here as an example. You can no longer be a member of the Taliban if, in fact, you are also a member of the new humanity in Christ. If that's you, you're welcome to talk to Pastor Ryan (laughs) at the end of the sermon. But in reality, I'm sure you can think of lots of other kinds of identities that no longer jive well with being part of this new family. However, what this usually actually means is that you can still belong to other groups, but they can no longer function as your primary identity. So let me, let me give you a quick example from my own life to just make this more real for a second. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm white. Your nervous chuckles. (laughs) Everybody's nervous. What's he going to say? About to put my foot in my mouth. Just hang in there with me for a second. I've had the pleasure of attending a predominantly black church on several occasions. And most recently, I attended a funeral at John Wesley United Methodist Church in Glen Burnie. And, And I was thinking about it. That service looked and sounded and felt very different than what I was used to. For starters, as soon as you get there, what you notice is that everybody is dressed immaculately. Like, I had a suit on, but I'm talking three-piece suits. I'm talking hats. I'm talking canes. The ushers had white gloves on, which I'm putting in request that that happens here. And then during the service, we, we sang hymns, hymns that I knew, but at a pace and a rhythm that I was unfamiliar with and, quite frankly, was way beyond my skill set. And then the preachers proclaimed the same Jesus and the same gospel, but they had a cadence and a fire and an organ playing in the background that made people want to stand up and say, preach, you can't help it. And actually, I borrowed that phrase from a little old lady who stood up in a church and said exactly that, and it's it's stuck with me since then. But listen, for, for all of our differences, and I'm not naive, I realize that our differences in many areas probably go deeper than that, 
But for all of our differences, racial and cultural, the followers of Jesus at John Wesley United Methodist are my people more than any other group of unbelieving people who may look and act more like me. That's what it means to have your identity deck reshuffled so that your membership in the new humanity with other Christians is always on top. That's the first practical way that our lives should be changed by these truths. Here's the second one. Being a part of the new humanity means that we love the old one. If Ephesians 2 has shown us anything, it has shown us that Jesus' entire mission, His very heart, is to bring near those who were once far, to make those who were alienated into full citizens. And if that is the heart of Jesus, it should be our hearts too. So what this means, and and Severn Covenant Church, if you're new here or just visiting, Severn Covenant Church is awesome. I'm not getting paid to say that. It really is. That's why I'm here year after year. We're a great church. But I'm speaking to the church in general in our culture. We have got to stop treating the world outside the church as though it's us against them and instead begin thinking like Jesus intends us to, which is it is us for them. Our mission that Jesus gave us is not to defeat the world. It is to win it. So so look around at the world, church. Just look around at it. So many people, you know them, are lost, and by their own admission, I know you've heard this before, they're trying to find themselves. They're confused about what it means to truly be human. But we know the answer. We are the new humanity. Not the perfect new humanity. We're still growing, but we are the new humanity. So here's what I would say to you. Here's my thought, a challenge, if you will. Let's put less effort into waging a culture war and more energy into building a culture of peace here in the church that will draw people in and help them discover who God made them to be. The answer to all the world's problems is not out there in all the other groups we belong to. It's right here. That's what Jesus died to accomplish. Now, those are just two out of probably dozens of different ways that the truths we talked about should reorient the way that we think and live. But another elephant in the room, the reality is we don't always live like that, do we? I said I was speaking mainly to believers a second ago. Now I probably have unbelievers saying amen, right? That is the common perception of people outside the church looking in, that that place, that group of people is full of hypocrites. And to that, I would say, you are absolutely right. I know that I can be a hypocrite sometimes. I don't always practice what I preach. But I was reading just a couple days ago. I wasn't even planning to use this in the sermon, but it was just in a book I was reading, a quote from a guy named Rich Mullins. Some of you may be familiar with that name. He wrote that popular Christian song, um, Our God is an Awesome God, back in the 90s, I believe. Unfortunately, died a very tragic death. And if you know anything about his story, you know that he was a very flawed Christian had a lot of struggles and weaknesses. But in the book, he had this quote, and I'm just going to paraphrase it. Basically, it's, I, he, he said, I don't understand why people think it's hypocritical to go to church. Because if anywhere, that's where hypocrites should be. In a place where they hear that they're flawed and fallen and receive the help and the accountability and the strength that they need to do better. He said, I, I could go jogging every Sunday with all the other perfect people, or I could come here 
and be a part of a group of hypocrites because that's what I am. So let me just be up front with you. We, we as a church are a family that still sometimes acts like little brothers and sisters. I have two of them. I have two little kids who irritate each other, tattle on each other. Sometimes they struggle to be in the same room together. And sometimes they actually deeply hurt each other. And we still sometimes act like a paranoid family, afraid of outsiders. The question is, how do we grow into maturity? How do, we, how do we actually take these things we've learned about being the new humanity and put them into practice? In other words, on a day-to-day basis, how do I live in peace with people that are so different than me? And the answer, we've actually already read it, um, but I'm going to say it to you one more time in verse 14. It's very simple. Here's the answer. Jesus Himself is our peace. In other words, when all we can see are our differences, and when all we can see are things that threaten us, or when all we can see is how that person or this person offended me, the remedy is to start seeing Jesus. In other words, the way forward is backward. Back to the cross and what Jesus did there day after day, week after week, We have to intentionally and repeatedly make ourselves turn our eyes to Jesus and remind ourselves what He did on the cross to kill our hostility. And when we do that, that is where we will find peace. That is how this new humanity will flourish. And there's no better example of this than the man who wrote this letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul himself. I read to you earlier from Philippians 3, Paul's own words about the kind of man that he was before Jesus came and interrupted his life's journey. He was thoroughly and unapologetically Jewish, which means, just to use his own words here, he hated Gentiles, and they hated him. But then Jesus changed his life. And what we see Paul doing after that has become so familiar to so many of us that it's really lost its shock value. So I want you to really lean in and try to listen to this with fresh ears. This Jewish man, Paul, who used to despise and avoid Gentiles, he devoted the rest of his life to bringing Gentiles into the family of Jesus. And I don't mean that he wrote some books and stayed in nice hotels and got paid a nice fee for all of his Gentile-inclusive seminars. He actually literally traveled by foot across the Roman Empire. And the one time we know of that he went um, overseas, he ended up shipwrecked. He was chased out of towns, had to escape in the middle of the night. He went hungry. His clothes became shabby. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was abandoned by his companions, almost surrendered to an angry mob in a Roman arena. And eventually, he's put under house arrest where he had to wait years before going on trial before Caesar. And to cap it all off... He ended his life at the swing of a sword. Paul did all of that because he loved a people he used to hate, and he wanted them to be a part of Jesus' new humanity with him. And the only question we should ask about that is how in the world did a mere mortal do something like that? And he gives us the answer himself. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, this is going to be the last scripture I read. The worship team can go ahead and start coming up. Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. Listen to what he says. 
But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. How was Paul able to forget all of his own fleshly advantages and feelings of superiority and lay down his life for a people he once hated? By boasting in nothing except the cross of Jesus. In other words, he had a mindset that said, you and I may be very different. I may not understand all of your cultural practices. And and quite frankly, you still have a lot of cultural baggage that I think you need to change. You don't know the Scriptures as well as I do. Many of you are uneducated and illiterate, but ultimately, none of that matters. None of it makes me better or you worse. The only thing that matters is that we've all been made new creations through the cross of Christ. And so every day I will boast in nothing that I have but the cross of Christ. So I'm going to end by asking you a question. What are you boasting in today? I want you to really think about that for a minute. Is there something in your life, some identity, some experience, some achievement, some performance, maybe even some pain Maybe you've been a victim. Even that, is there something that makes you feel more superior or more righteous than others? And if so, if you can identify what that thing is, what I want you to do is remember that whatever it is, on the cross, Christ abolished any reason for you boasting in it. But that doesn't mean He left you empty-handed. He has given you the best thing to boast in himself and what he's done for you. And so what this means is that today and tomorrow and next week and next month, what we have to do intentionally, because it will not happen on its own, we have to turn our eyes to Jesus and let our anthem be the same as Paul's, I will boast in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord, because the more we boast In Christ who unites us, the less we boast in ourselves and the things that divide us. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I'm going to start this prayer with a confession. I know, Anthony, that I boast in things that make me feel better than others. It's not always very explicit. It can be subtle, but it's there. I know it. And I know I'm probably in a room full of people that that can say the same thing. And so what I want to do, Lord, is pray together with them and first of all, ask for your forgiveness. Your forgiveness that you purchased on the cross. I don't have to do anything to gain it. You did it for me. Forgive me. Forgive me because when I boast in those things, I empty the cross of its power. I, I, I reject and despise what you accomplished for me, so forgive me. But now, Lord, I pray together with my brothers and sisters that you would help me to keep my eyes on you, not on everybody else and how different they are and the things that they've done, things that I've done. Help me to keep my eyes on you and boast and brag on and praise you for what you've done for me. Let that be my daily bread. God, give me the strength, give us the strength by your Spirit to make what Paul said, the very anthem and motto of our lives, that we would boast in nothing but the cross 
of Jesus. And by doing so, I pray that you would make us free. It is a miserable life to always be looking at what I have that makes me more superior than others. Because sooner or later, Lord, I know those things fail. So free us from those things so that we can live with joy and live in peace with each other through the power of your Spirit. And I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Amen.